0: Happy Nurses Week to all the nurses and future nurses listening. To celebrate, I'm having a 20% off sale on Study Sesh. This is my private podcast that features over 140 episodes to help you study on the go. Formats include pod quizzes, power hour deep dives, drills, and case studies. If you're tired of sitting at your desk or staring at a screen but still want to review for nursing school, it's time to check out Study Sesh. Go to straightanursingstudent.com and click on Courses in that top menu bar. That's straightanursingstudent.com and click on Courses in the menu bar. See you there! hello again and welcome to episode 6 and this is a pod quiz and the topic today is going to be neuro so let's just dive right into it and i think we'll start with neuro assessment because that is a big one and you're definitely going to have a skills check off on this and loads of test questions about Assessing your patient's neurological status. So, if you recall, if you've done a pod quiz with me before, then you know that the format of this is I ask a question and I pause for a little bit and let you have time to answer the question. I recommend you say the words out loud, that helps solidify it in your brain. But if you're, you know, at the gym on the treadmill and you don't want to look like a loony person, You can say the answer in your head, and then I will tell you what the answer is, and that's kind of how this goes. Think of it as flashcards for your ears. So let's pull up some information here that I'm going to quiz you on for your neuroassessment. So the first thing that we should review is having a really good acronym for all your neuro Uh, nerves that you're going to be testing is very helpful and the one that I used is as follows on occasion our trusty truck acts funny amazingly good vehicle anyhow and those are your cranial nerves 1 through 12 and the beginning letter of each of those words correlates to the beginning letter of each of the cranial nerves so with that in mind, what is cranial nerve 1? That's right, the olfactory nerve. What is cranial nerve 2? Exactly, optic. How about cranial nerve 3? Remember, it's our is the word associated in the mnemonic. Yes, cranial nerve three is oculomotor. Sorry, I have had a lot of coffee today. How about cranial nerve four? Trochlear, very good. And five? Yes, trigeminal. How about six? Did you get that one? It's abducens. I bet you did. You're smart. How about cranial nerve seven? facial and eight acoustic great how about cranial nerve nine that is glossopharyngeal excellent how about cranial nerve ten exactly that is the vagus nerve how about cranial nerve eleven Accessory, excellent, and cranial nerve 12, hypoglossal. So now we're going to go through how we can test for these and what they control. And the first thing to understand is if it's a sensory nerve, a motor nerve, or both. So, of course, I created or found or I don't know if I made this one up or if one of my classmates did or if it's something that I found at school or online, but it's another kind of mnemonic device to help you remember if it's sensory, motor, or both. And it goes 1 through 12, just like the trusty truck one, and this one goes like so. Some say marry money, but my brother believes it's bad business to marry money. Looking back, I don't think I made that up. That's far too clever. So I apologize for taking credit. I really think that I found this somewhere. So anyway, so the S's relate to it being sensory. So if the word starts with S, it's a sensory nerve. If the word starts with M, it's a motor nerve. And if it starts with a B, it's both. So I'll go through that again. Say it with me if you'd like. Some say marry money, but my brother believes it's bad business to marry money. So for olfactory cranial nerve one, the word is some. So that makes it a sensory nerve. Okay. For nerve two, is it sensory or motor? Sensory. Good. For nerve three, oculomotor, and it is motor. Exactly. Nerve four, trochlear. Motor. Good. Nerve 5. Truck. Trigeminal. That one is both. Good job. Nerve 6. Abducens. Motor. Nerve 7. Facial. That is both. Good. Nerve 8. Acoustic. Both. How about nerve 9. Glossopharyngeal. Also both. Nerve 10, vagus. That is also both. Nerve 11, accessory. That is motor. Yes, very good. And nerve 12, hypoglossal. That is motor. You're doing great. So let's go through what they do. Each nerve. And we'll go... 1 through 12, just because that's a little easier, especially if every time you're having to think through, our trusty truck acts funny. So the olfactory nerve, what is that in charge of? Yes, that is your sense of smell. Nerve 2, your optic nerve, it's a sensory. What's that in charge of? That one's easy. That's your sense of vision. Excellent. Nerve 3, oculomotor. This one moves the four muscles of the eye. Basically, it's going to raise the eyelid, do papillary constriction, and lens accommodation. Nerve four, trochlear. Yes, this one moves the superior oblique eye muscles. It is a motor nerve. Nerve five, trigeminal. This one is the... Sensation over your face and all the muscles of mastication, so chewing, um, opening, and closing the jaw, etc. Nerve six, the abducens. Yes, this one moves the eye laterally. Nerve seven is facial. This one controls the muscles of facial expression. And taste on that anterior two-thirds of the tongue. How about nerve 8, acoustic? That one is hearing and equilibrium. Nerve 9 is glossopharyngeal. What does that control? That one is your sense from the pharynx and taste on that posterior third of the tongue. Also, for motor, it's swallowing and the parotid salivary gland. Nerve 10 is vagus. For the sensory side, remember this is a both type of nerve. It's the proprioception from the pharynx and the larynx. And for the motor, it's the pharyngeal and laryngeal muscles. How about nerve 11, the accessory nerve? This is a motor nerve and it's involved in a lot. I'll give you another moment. Okay, so this one is pharyngeal, laryngeal, soft palate muscles the trapezius, and the sternocleidomastoid. So a lot there with that one nerve. And then the last one, nerve 12, hypoglossal. Yes, this is a motor nerve, and it is the intrinsic and extrinsic muscles of the tongue. Okay, so now let's talk about how we're going to test the patient. For each of these and if you have not yet had your neuro assessment check off you absolutely have to know all of this cold so let's go through it 1 through 12 starting with nerve 1 olfactory it's a sensory nerve for the sense of smell how are you going to assess So for this one, you'll have the patient hold one nostril closed and you'll pass something familiar smelling underneath the nostril. Common items are uh, orange slice or coffee, peppermint, something with a pretty strong and very familiar smell that's easily identifiable. Nerve two, optic, it's the sense of vision, how will you test? This one's pretty easy. You'll have them block one eye at a time. You'll have them read something. If they can't read, ask them how many fingers you're holding up. Super simple. Nerve three, oculomotor. It's a motor nerve for the four muscles of the eye. Raising the eyelid, papillary constriction, and lens accommodation. How do you test? This is, you're going to shine that light in there and watch the pupils constrict or not you will want them to open their eyes uh, move the eyes superior medial and diagonally Uh, you can use just make big movements with your hand and have them follow your hand so it's up to the side and diagonally moving on to nerve four trochlear it's motor for the superior oblique eye muscles how do we test for that We'll have the patient move their eye down and laterally. How about nerve 5 Trigeminal? It's sensory and motor for sensation over the face and the muscles of mastication. So for this one, you're going to check that blink reflex. Uh, You can touch the cornea lightly with a piece of cotton, checking for a blink. You can have them chew, open their jaw, clench their jaw, and then you can touch three areas of the face, near the temple, near the cheek, and next to the mouth. How about for the abducens? That is nerve six. It's a motor nerve that moves the eye laterally. Yeah, you'll just have them move the eye laterally. How about for nerve Seven, facial nerve. It's sensory and motor. It controls the muscles of facial expression. And if you recall, taste on the anterior two-thirds of the tongue. So the more front part of the tongue. How do we test? So you'll check for eye closing, ability to close mouth, move lips, make facial expressions, have them smile, um, check for salivation. Most people, it's pretty clear if they've got saliva in their mouth. And then nerve eight is acoustic. That's a sensory and motor. It is controlling hearing and equilibrium. How do you test? So you'll whisper a word about two feet, maybe one foot away from the patient's ear. See if they can hear you. Um, If you wanted to get really fancy, you could use a tuning fork. Um, Sometimes you'll see people just kind of rub their fingers together. Maybe you can hear this. I'll try it. I don't know if you could hear that, but if you do it just a few inches away from the ear, you can hear that. Nerve 9 is glossopharyngeal. It is sensory and motor. It is sensed from the pharynx and taste on the posterior one-third of the tongue. It's also responsible for swallowing And the parotid salivary gland how do we test so we're gonna check that they can swallow we can check for a gag by you know putting a tongue depressor down towards the back of the throat tongue Uh, you check for secretion of saliva you just eyeball that you can place some sugar some salt on the posterior tongue and see if they can taste it Nerve 10 is the vagus nerve. It is sensory and motor. It is the proprioception from the pharynx and the larynx and movement of the pharyngeal and laryngeal muscles. So here we're going to test the patient's ability to speak and swallow again. Uh, Swallowing is also related to Nerve 9, if you recall. And uh, you'll want them to say LNT, have them swallow. And you want them to say, ah, and you watch for the uvula to go up. Nerve 11 is accessory, and that is a motor nerve for the pharyngeal, laryngeal, soft palate, muscles, the trapezius, and the sternocleidomastoid. How do we test for that? So you're going to just place your hands on the patient's shoulders and have them shrug. You can also put one hand on the cheek and try to have them turn their head against your hand. And then the last one, cranial nerve 12, hypoglossal, it is a motor nerve for the intrinsic and extrinsic muscles of the tongue. So you'll have the patient stick out their tongue. Um, It should be straight right in the middle. Um, Or you can also have them push their tongue into the right cheek and their left cheek. If they have some kind of neurological injury, they will only be able to do that on one side. Okay, so moving on from the cranial nerves to other parts of your neuroassessment, let's talk a bit about the Glasgow Coma Scale. There are three main areas of the Glasgow Coma Scale. What are they? So those are your best eye-opening response, your best verbal response, and your best motor response. What is the max score on the Glasgow Coma Scale? Exactly. It's 15 points possible. What is the worst score that you could get? The worst score you could get is a 3. So basically a rock could get a score of three because it would have no motor response, no verbal response, and no eye-opening. Or also someone who is suffering from brain death or severely sedated. So that's the Glasgow Coma Scale. And let's talk about your balance tests, your cerebellar function tests. How are you going to perform the Romberg test? So here you're going to have the patient balance with their eyes closed. Um, Make sure you hold your arms out towards them so if they teeter you can catch them. Somebody with good cerebellar function can close their eyes standing and not fall over but somebody with maybe a cerebellar infarct or a cere- cerebellar brain bleed is going to probably teeter and totter with their eyes closed probably also with their eyes open to be honest and another test you're going to uh, perform is called rapid alternating movements what is that it's for a cele- cerebellar function So for this, you have the patient turn their hands palm side up and palm side down really, really fast and see if they can do that. Okay, how do you check for chopsticks sign? So you're going to tap the facial nerve over in the region of the parotid gland. What does it mean if they spasm when you do this? If there's a spasm, when you do this, it is a sign of hypocalcemia. How are you going to test for a Babinski response? So for this, you're going to move your finger along the lateral side of the foot. So you're going to kind of start up towards the bottom and go up and then across the top towards the big toe. When is this a normal response? it's a normal response in babies and what happens when the Babinski response is positive a positive Babinski means the toes will flare and flex okay Um, if you see that in an adult it is pathological usually the toes will just kind of curl in the foot will kind of clench up but in a positive Babinski you'll see a lot of flaring and a flexing back of those toes And then, how do you test for pronator drift? Perfect. You're going to have the patient hold their arms up, uh, right out in front of them with their palms upward. Have them then close their eyes. You're watching to see if one arm drifts down and then pronates, meaning that the palm will turn down. If this is Positive, meaning that it does occur, it's a positive sign that they probably had a stroke. What are the three elements of Cushing's triad? Hypertension, irregular respirations, and bradycardia. Excellent. Now let's talk about assessing the patient's thought processes and mental status. How do you assess for orientation? Basically, you're checking that they know person, place, and time. In the clinical setting, we also add situation. We want to know, do you know your name? Do you know where you are? What day is it? And why are you here? What happened? But in general, it's person, place, and time. And of those three, which is the last thing for the patient to lose if they're confused? Usually, person will be the last thing to to go. Um, They might not know what day it is or where they are, but they'll know who they are, which is a good thing. How would you assess the patient's ability to understand abstract thinking? To test for this, you could simply ask them to tell you what an abstract idiom means. Like, what does it mean if I say you're out to lunch or it's raining cats and dogs? If they give you a very literal answer, then they're not understanding abstract thinking. Note that this is only effective in patients for whom English is their first language. Someone who's learned English as a second language may not be familiar with all of our strange idioms. How about memory? How would you assess a memory on a patient? So for immediate memory, you would say three unrelated words and have the patient repeat them back. Um, You might tell them, I'm going to tell you three words and review them three minutes from now. And the words might be napkin, paperclip, bottle and then you go on and talk about something else and then a couple minutes later you ask them what those words were you could also also ask the patient what they had for dinner or breakfast that would be in a recent memory and then you want to test remote memory as well ask them something from their past like when did you graduate from high school or what was your um, favorite toy growing up something like that And then to assess for judgment, what could you ask them? A common question to ask to assess a person's judgment is, if this room were on fire, what would you do? And then make sure that they give you a response that makes sense. Now, let's talk about eliciting a response. We often, with our neuro patients, need to elicit a response to what is considered painful stimuli because they're not responding to uh, a verbal saying their name, gentle shaking, things like that. So we have to do painful stimuli. So there's central methods and peripheral methods. Generally, central methods are more accurate. And what would be some ways to elicit a response using a central method of painful stimulation. So there's four basic ones that are good to know. It's a trapezius squeeze, supraorbital pressure, a good sternal rub, or mandibular pressure. And then the peripheral methods, what would be a couple of those? For peripheral methods, it's common to use a pencil across the nail beds or squeeze the Achilles tendon. But if you really want a really accurate neuro, I suggest going with the central method, though you'll see a lot of people do the pencil across the nail beds. You can start there, but if you don't get anything, um, or even if you do get something, I would still go central. Now, there are um, three different responses to painful stimuli. Well, there's actually more than three um, because... There's like protection, withdrawal, but we're just talking about normal, which is the patient pulls away or shouts, but then the two pathological are flexion and extension, and there's decorticate posturing and decerebrate posturing. So one of these is flexion and one of these is extension. So is decerebrate posturing a flexion response or an extension response? Yes, decerebrate is an extension response. And then decorticate, is that flexion or extension? Okay, that was easy because it was the only other choice. That was flexion. Which one is more severe, decorticate or decerebrate? Decerebrate posturing is definitely more serious and it is a bad sign for neurological prognosis okay so those are generally your neuromuscular assessment i want to move on and do a little bit of general neuro so let's take a moment and switch gears so let's talk a little bit about dementia what is the most common form of dementia in individuals over the age of 65 So that would be Alzheimer's disease. And why don't you name a few of the early clinical manifestations of Alzheimer's disease. So in the early stages, you'll maybe see some recent memory loss, um, neglecting responsibilities, being careless. Maybe they're still working and their job performance is suffering. How about kind of that mid-stage Alzheimer's. What are some of the signs of that? So this patient's going to start having problems with their speech. They might talk nonsense, be completely disoriented. This is when they'll be wandering, very restless. They may not recognize family members, close friends. And they'll have problems with movement. And then how about the late stages of Alzheimer's? So in the late stages, your patient will be bedridden and have some spastic paralysis and contractures. Let's talk a little bit about some of the drugs used to treat Alzheimer's. Um, For mild to moderate dementia, you may see... I'm going to butcher the name, rivastigmine or brand name Exelon, what would be some of the side effects? For this drug, side effects include dizziness, weight loss, and flu-like symptoms. How about danazepil, also known as Aricept? Some side effects of this drug are nausea, vomiting, diarrhea, muscle cramping, and weight loss. Very good. How about galanthamine, also known as razedine, maybe it's pronounced razedine, I have no idea, and Reminil. For this one, you may have some dizziness, again, nausea, vomiting, the weight loss, and orthostatic hypotension. And how about Cognex or Tacrine? Some common side effects of this drug are nausea, vomiting, and liver toxicity. I think the com- one I see the most common is probably the Aricept of those. Um, let's see, what else can we talk about for Alzheimer's disease? Yeah, That's about it. Let's move on to a little bit about Parkinson's disease. What are some of the symptoms of Parkinson's? So with Parkinson's, we've got that muscle rigidity and that very classic tremor, probably the most common things you'll see. You'll also see slow movement or loss of movement and difficulty with balancing or with walking. Very good. What does the term dysarthria mean? That is related to difficulty speaking. How about dysphagia? Dysphagia is related to difficulty swallowing. Excellent. And the reason I bring these up is because Parkinson's patients will have some dysarthria and also develop dysphagia. So the treatments for dysphagia are going to be modified diet. Might be pureed foods. It might be just very finely chopped foods. It depends on the severity of their swallowing dysfunction They may need their liquids thickened. Thicker liquids are easier to swallow than just, say, straight regular liquids. You'll also, what are some of the things, speaking of just feeding a patient who has dysphagia that you would want to do as the nurse? So a few basic things would be to make sure they're sitting pretty darn upright like 45 degrees um or higher if you can straight i mean a straight up 90 would be ideal for eating you want to keep them upright for about 30 minutes to an hour after they eat in case there is any risk for aspiration you will want to have them eat slowly or if you're feeding them feed slowly you will have suction ready at the bedside in case they do have any problems. You will encourage them to focus on eating, not necessarily talk while they're eating, um, one bite at a time, very small bites, basic things like that. So what is, what is one of the most common medications used to treat Parkinson's? So the most common one that I see is Cinnamet. And it's a combination of what two drugs? Levodopa and carbidopa. Excellent. So let's see. Let's move on a little bit. Moving on to multiple sclerosis. Just a little bit about this. Just for a quick review. Uh, MS is uh, the cause of its unknown. It is a disease that affects the myelin sheath in the brain causing uh, neurological degeneration. It tends to affect women more than men. Onset is typically in the 20s or 30s. And um, just of note, You know, they don't really know why it's caused, but it's been thrown out there that, you know, trauma, anoxia, toxins, nutritional deficiencies, even anorexia nervosa could um, lead to destroying that myelin sheath. So let's talk a little bit about the types of MS. Um, There's benign and then a few more. So I'm going to describe the type and then you tell me what the name of that type is. Okay, so I'll just start with benign because that's easy. The symptoms are mild to moderate. They don't get worse, and they don't lead to permanent disability. So that's benign. That was too easy for a quiz question. So I'll do another one. Uh, What kind of MS is about 85% of people have this form. It's characterized by one or two flare-ups about every one to three years, followed by periods of remission. Um, These flare-ups typically appear very suddenly, last a few weeks or months, and then just gradually disappear. The symptoms may get worse with each recurrence. What type of MS is that? That's relapsing, remitting. Very good. What type of MS is characterized by neurological function deteriorating continually without any periods of remission? About 10% have this type. That is called primary progressive. And how about a patient who has had relapsing remitting for years and then now they enter a stage of continuous deterioration with or without relapses? That is called secondary progressive. And then how about this type? Um, It's a primary progressive MS with the addition of sudden onset of new symptoms or worsening symptoms. It's also pretty rare. That one is called progressive relapsing. So with the caveat that treatments for MS and basically any disease that we talk about here is obviously going to be constantly updated, let's talk about some of the basic treatments for MS. What would be a few of the basic treatments you would see? So in a broad sense, you'd have steroid treatment, prednisone treatment, things like that, Immuno, immuno. Modulating agents, you could have uh, interferons like Avonox. you could have immunosuppressive drugs, and those are kind of the main, the main ones. And let's move on to our final topic, which will be stroke. So let's talk about the signs of stroke using the acronym FAST. What do the FAST stand for? How about the F? That's facial droop. And the A? That's the arms showing that drift. S? That is slurred speech. Very good. And then the T, what does that stand for? Yep, the T stands for time because time equals brain. And the faster you act, the more brain that you can save. So when... A patient has a stroke it's most commonly going to occur now we're talking about an ischemic stroke in two common arteries what are these common arteries it's the middle cerebral artery and the internal carotid artery I'm going to describe some of the symptoms associated with each, and you tell me if it's the middle cerebral or an internal carotid artery stroke symptom. Okay, ready? Ipsilateral visual impairment. That's an internal carotid artery stroke symptom. How about spatial perception problems and problems with their judgment and their behavior that can be either one middle cerebral or internal carotid what about if your patient has contralateral henominous hemianopsia that is middle cerebral and also could be internal carotid, could be one of the other. How about ipsilateral Horner syndrome? That's an internal carotid artery problem. And how about dysphagia or aphasia? That can occur with either one. And how about contralateral paralysis or sensory loss? That could be with either one as well, middle cerebral or internal carotid. Let's say you've taken a patient to CT scan when they present to the ER with the signs and symptoms of stroke. What does it mean if the CT is negative? If the CT is negative, then this means that the scan was negative for a hemorrhagic stroke or bleed. Why is this important? This is important because if it's negative for bleed, then you can go ahead and give TPA or thrombolytic as long as it's not contraindicated by another issue that the patient has going on. So, speaking of those contraindications for TPA, what would be the blood pressure parameter that you would want the systolic to be under to give TPA? Under 185. How about the diastolic? 110. And how about... Platelets. Where would you want the platelets to be if you're going to give TPA? You'd want them to be above 100,000. And just for reference, some of the other parameters are no TPA for your patient if they've got any suspicion of bleeding. Not just, um, even if the CT scan is negative for bleed, if they've got suspicion of bleeding anywhere else in the body, like a GI bleed for instance, you would not give TPA. prior stroke in the past three months or past three months having any kind of head trauma or neurosurgery, any history of intracranial hemorrhage, um, let's see, a known AVM, which is an arteriovenous malformation or a known aneurysm or neoplasm. If you have suspected or confirmed endocarditis, you're not going to be giving them TPA or if their blood sugar is vastly out of control like below 50 or above say like 400. Um, There's some relative contraindications but mainly the ones that you're going to be tested on are the absolute uh, contraindications like we just talked about. So let's talk a little bit about what you're going to do for your stroke patient. One of the things that you are very Cognizant of as the nurse is maintaining cerebral perfusion pressure. What is the calculation to determine the patient's CPP or cerebral perfusion pressure? Yes, CPP equals MAP minus ICP. And what is your goal, CPP? You typically want it above 70 or 80 millimeters of mercury. So along the lines of the CPP, we also are going to have a blood pressure goal. Let's say that there's no TPA given. What do you want the blood pressure to be? Typically, anything below 200, we're kind of okay with because we want to perfuse the brain. What if the patient had received TPA? Then you'd want the blood pressure probably below 185 or 180. What is the drug mannitol used for? Manitol is used to decrease cerebral edema. Yes, excellent. And then what is nimodipine used for? Nimodipine, also known as nemotop, is used to help prevent vasospasm in hemorrhagic stroke. And what drug class is nimodipine? Exactly, it is a calcium channel blocker. Very good. And one more med question. What kind of drug is Keppra? What is it used for? Exactly, Keppra is a common anti-seizure medication. And most stroke patients will get it just for seizure prophylaxis, even if they did not have a seizure at the time of their stroke. Okay, let's move on to a few more Questions, some of these might be a little beyond what you're studying in med 1, um, but even if they are, they're good things to know, and you will have to learn them eventually. So, if you have an arterial bleed and you've got a hematoma, what kind of hematoma is that going to be? That's going to be an epidural hematoma. Versus a subdural hematoma. It'll be an epidural hematoma. Will it have a slow onset or rapid onset? Yeah, it's going to have that rapid deterioration. Typically with an epidural hematoma, you might see a short period of unconsciousness followed by an interval where they're making sense and then a rapid deterioration. What is Broca's aphasia? That is when the patient cannot express themselves. What about Wernicke's aphasia? That is their inability to perceive. What is a normal ICP? A normal ICP level is. About 5 to 15, um, usually in intensive care or neuro intensive care unit when we're measuring ICP. We don't typically intervene until it gets above 20 or if the cerebral perfusion pressure is too low. When you're measuring CSF, you expect it to be what percentage of the blood glucose level. You expect it to be about 60% of the patient's blood glucose level. If this is vastly different, then there's something going on with your patient. Okay, I think that ought to do it. You guys did really, really great. I want to remind you that there's a load more of resources of all kinds over at straightanursingstudent.com. And if you're a new student or struggling in school, I highly recommend my book Nursing School Thrive Guide, which is available on Amazon and I think Barnes and Noble, definitely on Amazon as a paperback, a Kindle book, or now as an audiobook, very excited about that. And last but not least, if you are enjoying this podcast, I encourage you to please go to iTunes and rate and review us. By rating and review this podcast, it helps it appear in the search rankings so that more students can find us. Um, Please be kind. I realize we're not in a professional studio. I'm in my office with my cat, who you may hear occasionally. Um, But I just wanted to get this information out to you guys and help you with the things that I wish I'd had when I was in school so that you can do really great and hopefully have a lot less stress than I did so again thank you for listening and we'll be back next week with another exciting episode the straight a nursing podcast is a production of straight a copyright 2017 Mo media